Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Good morning, everybody. Turn with me in your copy of God's Word of the book of Ezra. Ezra, if you have a tablet or an iPad or an iPhone, it should be pretty easy to find electronically. If you're not, if you're using that old-fashioned thing called a book, just follow along with me through the following books, Genesis, then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Then you're going to come to the book of Ezra. Now, we're going to be all over the scriptures today, but that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. And while you're turning, let me remind you that next Sunday is Mother's Day. Yeah, all the ladies remembered, and, and the guys are like, I saw a few guys like, whoa, yeah, I got to do something. Yeah, you better get to Walmart. You better do something, right? All right, so guys, this is your seven-day warning. Mother's Day's coming, and no fear, when you come in here, bring your friends, bring your family, bring mothers, bring grandmothers. We've got a gift for every mom. It's going to be great. I think it involves chocolate ladies. I'm not entirely sure, uh, but the women on our staff are putting it together, so you know it'll be good, right? It's not the dudes, it's the ladies. Uh, and then we're going to be giving away a few spa packages as well. So, um, Wow, at the 9 o'clock, I heard the air go out of the room. You can, now, oh, it, I see some faces now. They're like, well, well, this is great. This is great. So we're going to have a great time. There'll be a professional photographer here as well that's going to be taking family photos. Wonderful time uh, to celebrate with mom. So I hope you'll join us as well. But today, we continue our series, The Story. If you're guests with us and you've kind of just hopped in, you've caught us in the middle of this series, our goal, what we started on January the 8th in Genesis chapter 1, our goal is to move through the entire storyline of the Bible and wrap up Revelation by around the second week in June. So obviously that means we're flying at a very high altitude, at a very high speed. But one of our objectives here is to give you some handles so that you can understand God's Word better for yourself. So when you're sitting at home with your children, as you should if you're a follower of Jesus, and you open the Bible up to a book like Ezra, you know who this man was, you know what period in history he existed and what particular issues he was dealing with. And of course, the thread that kind of is weaved throughout this whole story that we've been talking about is the person and the work of Jesus Christ, whose advent we are about to come up on. So as a, as a way of reviewing, let me just kind of review where we've been so far. We've covered the period of beginnings, which describes in the first 11 chapters of, of Genesis where we came from, that we're created in the image and likeness of God. It also reveals the beginnings of, of all of the things that are bad in our world, famine and warfare and disease and everything else. All of that finds its origins in our rebellion, in the, in the person of our first parents in the Garden of Eden. God placed our first parents outside the garden ever since you and I have been living in a world outside the garden, and that's why we experience the things we do. But we also, in that period of time, see a beginning promise of God, that God's not going to leave the world this way. In fact, he says early in Genesis, I'm going to send a seed from the woman, a, a Messiah is going to come into the world, and that individual is going to restore everything back the way God originally intended. And so as you can see this uh, 
collage of paintings up here that Terry on occasion gets up and paints while I preach. And so you begin to see the, the visual representation of the story as we've told it thus far. And this very first picture isn't just the picture of the beginning of that promise. It's actually what sets the precedent for everything else in scripture. Every other story, every other character, every other circumstance is tied to this promise. The seed of the woman, there will be a woman. She will give birth that baby will be the Messiah. That Messiah will, will inaugurate a new kingdom that will reverse everything that our father Adam did in his rebellion in the garden and set everything back in its rightful place. A redeemer is coming. That's the point. And then we move into the period of the patriarchs and we begin to see that God raises up a nation through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And, and it is through that nation this, that this Messiah is gonna come. Then we see that nation end up in Egypt under the thumb of an Egyptian pharaoh, and we see God raise up another man named Moses to get them out of slavery, out of Egyptian slavery, into the Sinai wilderness. It's there that they receive the law. They receive instruction on how to build a tabernacle where they will worship their God. They are given instructions as far as a sacrificial system in terms of how they are to worship their God. And then as they get just to the east side of the Jordan River, Moses then hands the baton to Joshua. That takes us into the next period, the, Egyptian, the, the period of conquest and settlement. And the great military commander Joshua mounts a military campaign that will take the land of Canaan from God's enemies and will transfer it to where it belongs to the people that God had promised that he would give that land to, all the way back to their father Abraham. Very quickly, things though begin to go downhill. The period of the judges is also in this period of conquest and settlement. God's people become immoral. God's people themselves rebel against God. They worship other gods. Uh, they don't live as God intends them to live. And so they finally decide, well, the answer to this is we need a king. And that then takes us into the period of the United Monarchy. And we looked at three, the three kings in particular, Saul, and then David after Saul, and then Solomon after David. Three men who ruled over Israel. We saw, we saw the good, the bad, and the ugly in each man's life, ending with Solomon, who through his own sin actually takes this great kingdom that he and his father and, and Saul have built together, and it begins to fray until it finally splits and, and comes apart. That then brings us into the period of the divided kingdom where we have Israel dividing, divided from the southern kingdom. You have Israel in the north, you have Judah in the south, and you have two kingdoms that used to be united and now they're at odds with each other. And over the next 350 years, they will continue to degrade, they will continue to decay until they ultimately exist no more. The Assyrian army will come in in 722 BC. They will attack and they will destroy and they will scatter the people of Israel in the north. 150 years roughly after that, the Babylonians will come in to the south and do roughly the same thing. And that's the period we looked at last week is the period of the Babylonian exile and captivity. When God's people have no more temple, they have no more sacrificial system, they are homeless, but they find in the midst of that that they still have their God. And today, we cover the final period of history in the Old Testament. And so again, as we head up to the fulfillment of this promise, God said all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to send a seed from the woman. The Messiah is coming. Who's going to fix this? We are right now where we are in our study and in our series on the cusp of seeing Messiah appear. But there's one more period of history we have to cover, and it's the period of the return from the exile. That begins with some world history that is probably necessary for us to, to understand. The demise of Babylon. 
Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian king, dies in 562 BC, and the Babylonian kingdom begins to die with him very quickly following his death. During that time, the most significant rival that they had was something called the Medea Persian kingdom. And it was led by a king whose name we have heard before, a man by the name of Cyrus. 200 years before Cyrus's grandfather is even born, Isaiah would prophesy in chapter 44 of his prophecy, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. And so God is going to use this man Cyrus to bring his people back. This man, after Nebuchadnezzar's death, defeats an alliance of Egypt and Lydia and Babylon. And now what was once considered the Babylonian kingdom will now be identified as Persia. This is what Isaiah had predicted as well. In fact, if you look at chapter 14 of Isaiah's prophecy, you see a text that has erroneously for several centuries been understood as relating to Satan. But if you look at the very first line, you see who it's actually spoken against. You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. So Isaiah, long before this Babylonian's king name is ever known, speaks of to a people 200 years into the future and tells God's people, do not put your trust even in the security of your Babylonian captors because this is what's going to happen. How the oppressor has ceased. The insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol or the grave beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones. All who were kings of the nations, all of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. And the exclamation point there is intended because people are astonished by this. Every period of history has a powerful kingdom in it. Every period of history has at least one, sometimes more, very notable rulers in it. And we're tended to look at those men or women as if they will never pass from the scene. Uh, we tend to look at those people and have great fear of them. And that's what's happening. So these people are astonished because they're saying, you've become like one of us. Your pomp and circumstance, all of, all of your, your sticking out of your chest, all of that is brought down to the grave. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. In other words, your body's going to rot just like ours. You, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, in other words, through the building up of his empire, he's going to become like a God. Nebuchadnezzar expected that he would be worshiped like a God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Is this the guy everybody was afraid of? Is this the guy everybody looked to as somehow presiding, as if somehow he's going to preside over an eternal kingdom who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? That's a phrase the Israelites would have remembered because they were his captors. But this man, 
is now dead. His kingdom is now no more. Babylon is gone. Persia is rising. And over it all, there is a sovereign God working through every bit of it. And he will set the stage for the coming of the world's Messiah at this point in history through a kingdom called Persia and a people that you and I today call Iranians. This is our God. This is how he works through human history. And in the midst of all of that, very quickly, Cyrus comes onto the scene and he immediately, almost, begins to release the Jews to go back to their homeland. And there are three noticeable returns to that homeland that we see here. The first is the return that is led by Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel. That return happened about 538 BC, shortly after the defeat of Babylon. And so Cyrus issues a decree that effectively allows them to go back. And you can see from the two texts of scripture here that primarily what they're doing is they're taking all of the instrumentations of worship in the temple back to Jerusalem with them. And they're laying a foundation for what will be the second temple. Okay. So there's a foundation laid. You think about a foundation in our day. It might be wood. It might be poured concrete. Uh, if, you're, if you're on a coast somewhere, it might be on stilts. But the foundation has been laid. So you would think, well, if the first group took and went and poured the foundation or built the foundation, the second group would do what? They would frame it, right? They would start the building process. But that's actually not what happened. It would be some 90 years after this moment that the second group of exiles would come around 458 BC, led by a man whose book, whose, whose book this, this Bible named after. His name is Ezra. And Ezra will lead those people in 458 BC. And interestingly enough, he will not continue construction. Now, I wonder why that is. Aren't there times, though, that it just, it's just time to call off construction because there's something happening that you have to deal with, right? How many of you have ever built a house and you went through that, right? So we we got to stop construction because there's something here that's not happening that should be happening, okay? Ezra does that. But what's happened, there's nothing wrong with the foundation physically. What's happening is God's people need to get right with their God. And so Ezra's return is not focused on framing. It's not focused on the roof. It's not focused on construction of any kind. What it's focused on is the spiritual reformation and repentance of God's people. That's what he focuses on. Because God's people, after all these years, need to push the reset button with regard to their relationship with their creator. How many of you have ever needed to push the reset button on something? Could it be a career? It could be, man, I got up on the wrong side of the bed and it's 10 o'clock and I just got to pretend like it's seven and I got to start over again. Every once in a while, Mrs. Rainey and I will get up, one, sometimes both of us, and that's a really bad day, on the wrong side of the bed, and it's some hours later after we've snapped at one another, or it's just been a bad moment of, of what a mentor of mine calls really intense fellowship. I don't know if you've ever experienced that in your marriage, and, and eventually one of us has got to come to the other one. I guess it's whoever gets full of the Holy Spirit first, uh, or if I've already gone to work, one of us has got to send the other one a text, and what do we have to say? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I love you. Let's start over, right? Let's push the reset button. Let's pretend like we just got out of bed and let's try to do this right next time. So sometimes it's as insignificant as a mulligan on the golf course. Sometimes it's as significant as your relationship with your spouse. But, but how many of you have had a situation like that before? Married couples especially, you better get them hands up. I know you're gonna be, my next sermon's by line. 
right? I know this is how this works, okay? You, you, you know that's happening. I got to push the reset button. This is the opportunity for God's people to push the reset button. God, over the last 70 years, has been cleaning the slate of sin that God's people had built up for the last 350 years before that. And he's giving them an opportunity to do something. Push the reset button. And the word we need to know, the word that is key in pushing the reset button and starting over with God, is a word called repentance. Take a look at Ezra chapter 9. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting. Now you got to think for a minute. This is a guy who wasn't even there for all that sin. He's not there. But he comes and in the place of those who have gone before him, he takes responsibility for what is his now. And he repents corporately along with the rest of God's people. I arose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, which was a cultural way of expressing repentance, sorrow over your sin. I fell upon my knees. I spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying, now catch this phrase, look at this. Oh my God, I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Take a look at that phrase again. I blush to lift my face to you. I'm going to say something really bold based on this and a plethora of other texts that give witness to this principle throughout both Testaments. If you have never felt this way, you do not know the God of the Bible. You have no relationship with him. If there's never been a time in your life where you have so felt the weight of your sin and rebellion against your creator that you were afraid to look him in the face, if there has been no legitimate, terrifying fear of God, you don't know him. It doesn't really matter what you've said or what you have prayed. Any kind of heart change that at the substantive heart level, if God has genuinely given you a new heart, it starts this way. God, I know who I am. I know who you are. I know it's not popular these days to talk about that, but this is the road to repentance. This is where it starts. Now, in the church, we have two extremes going on right now in the West. One is the extreme that always ignores this because they think when you come to church, it's always got to feel like Disney World. It's always got to be fun. The hair's always got to be standing up. You got to be emotional. You got to cry. You got to lift your hands. You got to do all this stuff. And that that's the measure of spirituality. And if I ever feel bad, God must not be in that. And if that's you, you've never read the Bible. Because when people encounter God, Isaiah himself falls at the feet of God. We're going to look at this in a few weeks when we enter our next series, Honest to God, where we talk about the attributes of God. Isaiah encounters the God of the Bible and he cries out in terror as if one of his children just died. John, the revelator, when he writes the last book of the Bible that we're going to cover in just a couple of weeks, he cries out in terror. He says, literally, I fell on my face like a dead man because I'm standing in awe of God. Now, there is an extreme that ignores that. Then there's the other extreme in Western evangelicalism that wants you to always stay there. Always be ashamed, always be embarrassed, always be over your sin. You're always just guilt, 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 guilt. And what you need to know is that this is the first step to a better life. It is not something that God intends you to stay in. God intends for you to move through those cold, deep waters of repentance so that you can get on the other side of the river and not stay in 
melancholiness, not stay in mundaneness, not stay in sorrow and fear and terror, but cross that river into a life of joy unspeakable that you have never known before in your entire life until you get there. But the only way to get there is to what Ezra prescribes for his people. Repentance. Repentance. This is something we, again, we don't hear a lot about this today in the church, particularly corporate repentance. Not just Joel getting on his knees and, and asking God's forgiveness and asking me for a better way to treat my wife. Or I spoke to one of my kids way too harshly and I've, I've got to do better at that. God, help me to do better. It's not just the individual, but corporately, God speaks to people as one body, often in the Bible. And so you, you, don't, you, you hardly hear anything. You don't hear much at all about individual repentance. You hardly hear anything at all about corporate repentance, the very thing that we see here in Ezra's day that's going on. For God's people to come together and say, we corporately have sinned and we need to make things right and we need to start moving in a different direction. But what's true for an individual is true for the entire body of Christ. The only way we get the destiny that God wants for us as a corporate people is through those cold, deep waters of repentance. And we don't get that. We think it's got to be something else. We, we go, you know, it's, it's, I don't find it mere coincidence that in our day, we who are the least inclined to repent are also simultaneously the least inclined to experience revival. Because we go around the world and we see different kinds of things. If you could go to the Middle East with me, if you could go to certain places in Asia with me where you might see horrible persecution of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And you would say with me, they need religious freedom. And as a person who has advocated for religious freedom on five continents, I agree with you, but it, it also would help us to recognize that they're doing a really good job flourishing and growing in Christ without religious freedom. We might go to Africa and we would see abject poverty in certain pockets of sub-Saharan Africa and you may go, well, they need financial resources. I wouldn't argue that point with you except to remind you that the African church is growing exponentially and flourishing as the gospel moves forward in mighty ways and they're doing it without the financial resources that we think they need. Meanwhile, here we are in the West, we have our education, we have our seminary degrees, we have our money, we have our great air-conditioned facilities with padded seats in them, we've got our slick programs, and we think the answer is some new strategy or maybe another leader or maybe some bigger, badder program that will outdo the church on the other side of town. And Ezra is screaming at us in a moment like that and saying, even to his own people, there will not be a new building until there are new hearts. There have to be new hearts. And we see repentance as a result. Take a look at this. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. And Shekinah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God. And then specifically, they named their sin. In this case, we have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. This is corporate repentance. We've had, I don't know, it, it's been north of 100 of you that have, are new to the covenant family over the last year, roughly. And it's been a joy 
uh, to see our church grow numerically, and it's been a, an even greater joy to see roughly 50 of you come through our discovery class and become officially a part of that family. But when we hold that discovery class now, Pastor Chris always gives me about 30 minutes or so to come in and talk about the broader vision of the church. He teaches the bulk of the class, but I'll talk for about a half an hour about that broader vision, specifically as it relates to how we want to engage our neighborhoods and the world, the way in which we're going about that. And I always start out by telling people that when you join a church family, you're stepping into a story that's been written for, for decades, really. And so you're stepping into, from our perspective, a 30-year-old story that has some wonderful things in it, has some really bad things in it, just like any other church. And you need to know, out of fairness to you, what you're getting into. And here's what I tell them. You are stepping into the fa a family that is in the middle of transition and attempted revitalization. And I tell them, for roughly the last 10 years, we've been adrift and we've been in decline. And we're thankfully seeing God begin to turn some things around, but this is where we're at. And as a result, we still have some hard work to do. And so I don't want you coming in uh, thinking that we've sold you a used car. I want to be upfront with you and say, not everything we do around here will be fun. Some of it will be hard. Some of it will be painful. Some of it may even be heartbreaking. But it is the hard work of doing the very kind of thing that Ezra talks about here. Now, I love fun, okay? If you weren't here last week, you missed it. Buckets and buckets of Mountaineer popcorn. Next week, giving away spa packages to the moms and chocolate and all kinds of stuff. Nutter's ice cream is coming in July. Woohoo! I love it. Yeah, it's great. I, I want to have fun. But that's not all that we're about. And there are times when God calls us corporately, not just individually, to repent. If you're using, in fact, the sermon-based curriculum for your small group this week, you're going to have that question in your curriculum. It's going to ask this question. In what specific way do you believe God is calling our church corporately to repent? What are we guilty of that we need to own up to God about? And what would that repentance look like? That question's coming. My hope and prayer is that it will spur conversation and prayer and repentance that will even start at the small group level and just kind of in an out of control way, just sort of burn through the joint. That's my prayer. That's my prayer. Because some of you, I've been here about 15 months now, some of you are looking at me to bring it still. And you have yet, I mean, after 15 months, you'd think after watching me, you'd know how wholly impotent I am to bring revival. I can't do it. Only God can do that. And the only way God will do it is if we practice what we see here in Ezra. And I know what some of you are probably thinking. Well, Pastor, what, what exactly have we done wrong? I don't know. I'm not going to specify that. I'm, I'm just kind of stepping into this history myself. I will tell you that like Ezra, even though I may not be at fault for much of what we have done corporately in our past, I now hold an office that probably is. And along with Ezra, I will need to repent as well. Because that is corporate repentance. And it is worth the hard journey because on the other side of it is a joy we have never known before. And guys, I'm going to tell you, that is the ultimate need at Covenant Church right now. It is. It's the ultimate need. I'm not saying you're bad people. I'm just saying, I'm not saying I'm a bad person. I'm just saying we need to look. We need to take a long, hard look at at least the last uh, decade and a half of our existence as a church family and say, what is it that we need to own up to? How is it that we need to begin to move in a different direction? And until that happens, folks, the only good we will experience will tend to be at the cosmetic level. 
and that can happen. We, we can make that happen. I talked about that about a year ago. It'd be easy to blow up the numbers. I mean, really, all you really need is a couple of people that are really, really good at communications and marketing and sociology, and you could just blow the doors off this place. You could do it. But you also need to know, as your pastor, I am not the least bit interested in that. I do not want cosmetic recovery. I want revival because it's better. It is exponentially better than anything else and it only comes on the other side of repentance. So this week, particularly for those of you that are in the groups, you need to be talking about that and talking about those questions and looking at our history together as we move toward what I would hope in the, in the weeks and months to come is a corporate move to prayer and repentance and crying out to God and turning from whatever it is that we need to turn from and pushing the reset button. Ezra gives us the pattern for how to do that. And then after Ezra comes Nehemiah. That only happens 13 years later. Now, see, now it's time to start building something again. And for Nehemiah, that building is the walls around Jerusalem. In the ancient world, if a city did not have walls around it, it was open to attack from the enemy. And Nehemiah from Persia realizes that the walls are in disrepair. He worries about his countrymen and he gets permission from his king to go back and to try to rebuild the wall. Now, here's something you need to know about Nehemiah. Nehemiah is not a prophet. He's not a priest. He is a government advisor. He's a builder. He's a manager of people and resources. He's just a guy, a regular guy who happens to be gifted with incredible leadership skills and he has a passion for God. And it is Nehemiah, the builder, Nehemiah, the regular guy who changes things for God's people. Oftentimes I get the question, sometimes it even comes from some of you. I, I wish I could be in ministry. And if you've ever told me that, you know what my answer is, right? You are. You are in ministry. I know that, Pastor, I know. But what I really wish is I, I wish I could trade places with you. I wish I could just do it full-time, vocationally. I wish I could leave my job. And, and, often, and there are times where God calls people to a second career and he calls them into ministry to serve God's people. I'm not denying that. I think there's very legitimate reasons why he would do that. But for so many people, it's not that. It's not a call to what I do. It's, it's a disdain for what they do. And they don't realize that what you're doing, like Nehemiah, has redemptive properties to it. There is so much that could be accomplished through you that I can't accomplish. And yet, there's still that, well, I just wish I could hang out all the time at the church. Trust me, you don't. I love you. I love this place. I love our staff. But, but it really, I mean, work is work, okay? Now, you go up on the fourth floor of our office, ask any of our staff, and there's, there's, there's trouble at work just like there's trouble at your work because we're human beings, okay? We're truthfully, we're not just on our knees all the time praying and crying out to God. It's not a revival. Just ask our staff, especially our executive staff, Tuesday mornings, 10 to noon. Is it, Ken's right back there. Is it a revival on Tuesday morning? No. See, there you go. So that's how it works, okay? Here's the other thing. Do you know how incredibly hard it is for me to punch through the bubble of staffing and structure and everything else that is Covenant Church and actually get out into the community and talk with somebody who doesn't know Jesus? You know how incredibly hard that is for a pastor? Furthermore, let me just ask you this. Do you really think your coworkers and your family and your friends would be more impressed if you had my job? Do you think they'd be more impressed with my seminary degree, with my knowledge of the Greek language, with my position on the end times? Can I let you on a little secret about your friends and family and coworkers? They don't give a rip about that stuff. They don't care about that. 
and yet there you are right in their midst. And if they're your coworker, you're working with them in an area of society that both of you are passionate about, and you have the opportunity to bring glimpses of the kingdom of God exactly the way Jeremiah did. It is not the preachers and the prophets who are going to make a difference in the kingdom. Folks, it never has been. It's always been the people of God. The priests and the prophets were there to pour into the people so that the people might make the difference. I, I sat on a multi-faith panel several weeks ago at Shepherd University, and that was a question we were asked. What can faith leaders do to solve this particular problem? And I'll tell you what my answer was. I bragged on you guys. I said nothing. And the room kind of got quiet and the air got sucked out of it. And I said, listen, there's some things I can do to influence my people. But all I, I get up and I preach and I minister and I'm thankful for that calling. But I really am not the person that, gonna, that is going to make the difference in this world on this issue or on any other issue. But I get up every single Sunday morning and I preach to hundreds of people who can make an eternal difference. It's you. It's the people of God who will take on a mantle like Nehemiah, just a regular dude who had some incredible gifts and he carries those gifts to a particular place in a particular time. How many Nehemiahs do we have in front of me this morning? That's my question. What burden has God given you for your neighborhood, your workplace, your friends and neighbors? And then here's the bigger question. What kind of impact do you think could be had with a group this size and a group just a tad larger than you at the nine o'clock could just grab the heart of Nehemiah. What kind of impact could a group this size have on healthcare and business and art and agriculture and technology and education that would change the tri-state area? Your pastor will never be able to do that. That's got to be you, but you have to have the same heart that Nehemiah had. And together, Ezra and Nehemiah, they lead the nation of Israel in vast religious and social reforms. And they start laying a very solid foundation for what can be the future of this new Israel that's coming back to their promised land. Now, here's the thing that may surprise you. And if you've been through our series together and you've been here since the beginning, it shouldn't surprise you at all. God's people begin to go off the rails again very quickly. You notice how this is a pattern with Israel? They, they get set up. God gives them everything they need, every available resource at their disposal. They go off the rails, and this starts to happen again. And so God raises up in this time period a number of prophets, beginning with the prophet Haggai. Now, here's the thing you need to know about Haggai. Haggai is an older guy. He is probably in his late 70s. All the internal evidence from his prophecy tells us that he was actually physically present and saw the former temple, Solomon's temple. That's how old he is. Some of you are about where Haggai is in terms of your age. And, and the big mistake we make in the evangelical church is allowing those of you who are at that stage of life to think to yourselves, well, I'm old, I'm done, this is all I'm gonna do, I'm finished, hand it over to the younger people. And I will simply say to you, in love, you're still breathing, hence you ain't done. When you die, that's when you're, God tells you when you retire, Okay. If you're still alive and sucking wind, he's still got something for you to do. And it's a you have a great model in Haggai. It, here's the other side of it. You, you are, admittedly, if you're at this age, you're in the midst of a church culture that doesn't honor you and doesn't respect you and doesn't value the contributions that you can make with your wisdom and with your experience. And I'm sorry for that. We've, we worship youth and beauty and all this kind of stuff just like the world. And it has cost so many men and women who are at this age level, 
the honor that they are due, and it has been, truthfully, to the destruction of our culture in many ways because we do not recognize the simple proverbial wisdom that a gray head is a crown of glory. And so I, I get that. But here's your calling. Even in the midst of that environment, you still have a call, and it is to do what Haggai did. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? It is, not, is it not as nothing in your eyes? He's saying, boys, I saw the former temple, and I see what you're building, and it ain't getting it done. So what Haggai's doing as an older man is he's speaking to the younger men, and he's calling them lazy and lethargic, and he's calling them out. And he's saying, it is time to get to work. And I have to tell you, as a, I don't know that I'm young anymore. I guess it depends on how old you are as to whether or not you view me as young or old. Our youth view me as, you know, having come around just before the invention of fire. And some of you view me as a young pup, still wet behind the ears. But, you know, I'm, I'm 45 years old. So I'm kind of in between stages right now. And even now at my age, when I see an older man talk like Haggai, work like Haggai, it pushes me to do more than what I'm doing. Because I'm going to tell you, there's nothing like having a bunch of young dudes stacked, built, in really good physical shape. They could size up an old man like Haggai and go, you know what, physically and in almost every other way, even my ability to think quickly, I got it over him, but he's ahead of me. How's that happening? That shouldn't be happening. I'll never forget when I was 17 years old, I had an Uncle Bud and he invited me out. Actually, he you know, it wasn't an invitation. It was an invitation to hard work. He said, son, I got, this, uh, I got this acreage on the backside of my property, and I need to clear some trees, and I need you to help me with it. And I said, all right, uncle, I'll do that for you. And so I, I drove out one, one Saturday morning with my chainsaw, and I started going to work on those trees. And maybe five, ten minutes later, my uncle Bud, who was probably about the age of Haggai, I don't remember exactly, late 70s, early 80s possibly, all of a sudden I looked up, and here he comes with an axe. And I thought, that's old school. He's not going to last very long, but that's old school. An hour and a half later, I'm taking multiple breaks with a chainsaw. He hadn't took the first break with that axe. He worked me to death with that axe. And I'm thinking, how in the world can that happen? And every time I read the prophecy of Haggai, I just think about that story personally and how a man old enough to be my grandfather, who probably even shouldn't have been out there doing it, but he's out there and he's pushing and pushing and pushing. And the young guy, 17-year-old, can't keep up with him. And what does that do to me? It motivates me to work. That's Haggai. I'm telling you, if you're at this age, it is not time for you to sit down, gentlemen, ladies. It is time for you to set the pace for the generation coming behind you. It's time for you to call them out when they're being lazy, call them out when they're being uncommitted, call them out when it is time to go to work. And nobody can do that like an older man or an older woman. That's the value that we should place on those who have advanced to that stage of life. And, and closely associated with Haggai is his, his younger contemporary, Zechariah. So Haggai's, he's kind of narrowly focused. This, this thing, this edifice has got to get put up. You guys aren't working fast enough. The job you're doing is shoddy. It's not right. We got to do this right, fellas. He's challenging them. And Zechariah is backing Haggai up with a bigger picture of why building this temple is important. Because from our perspective, this is the temple where Jesus will appear. And they don't get that yet. They just think they're, they're building an edifice. Zechariah says there's work to be done here and this is the reason the work is important messiah is coming and we see that here he's going to come in lowliness 
He's going to ride into town on a donkey. He's going to be rejected. I mean, dead on accurate prophecy that you see from Zechariah. And ultimately, he will establish a reign of peace and prosperity. Look at this. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the crux of Zechariah's message. Guys, what Haggai is telling you is true. You need to get to work, and the reason you get, need to get to work is because eternity is about to intersect with history, and it's going to happen right here where we are, and you have the opportunity to be involved in that. You need to push forward. This moment, which was predicted all the way back to Genesis 3, God's promise to Adam and Eve, I'm going to send the seed, he's going to effectively reverse everything that the first Adam did. It's about to happen. That moment is getting closer, and Zechariah can sense it. But the people don't listen. They continue to be lethargic. They continue to break the Sabbath. They refuse to tithe to financially support the ongoing work. They, they continue intermarrying with others who don't worship the Lord their God. All of human history is about to change, and these people remain in their sin. So God sends one final prophet, a man named Malachi. Take a look at chapter 1, verse 6. A son, this is God speaking to his people through the prophet, a son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. One final warning to a lethargic people who can't see beyond their own circumstances and their own world. They, they, they've heard that Messiah is coming. They've heard the, the critical role they play historically in that. And they simply don't care. One more warning comes from this man about their idolatry, about their refusal to support the work financially, about their intermarrying with other people. And after this one final word, the radio goes silent for the next 400 years. Think about that. Not hearing one syllable from the mouth of God for 400 years. But centuries prior to this moment, Amos had predicted this. He said to the people of the northern kingdom when it existed, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. There is a time coming when you will cry out to hear something from God, and there will be nothing but silence from heaven. And this is a day where there were no scrolls, there were no books, there was certainly no software you wanted to hear from God, you had to wait on a prophet. And from Malachi to Jesus, there will not be another one for 10 generations in Israel. Think about that for just a minute. I put up the other day, uh, the president of the seminary where I attended has been doing a tour throughout Europe. The Reformation is five, the Protestant Reformation is 500 years old this year. And I was so jealous because he, he was in Wartburg Castle. And he took a picture of the desk, the table where Martin Luther spent all of his time translating the Bible. It had been in Latin for a thousand years. Nobody could read it except the educated clergy. He translated it into the German language. That was step number one of the scripture spreading like a wildfire through the common man, through Germany and the rest of Europe. Luther believed that God's word was not just for the educated and the clerical class. He believed it was for everybody. He believed that the plumber, the carpenter, the whoever ought to be able to pick this thing up and read it and understand it for themselves. And, and I thought, man, I was celebrating it. And, and one of you 
ask a question and that, and that, and I've just not forgotten. I thought this is, it's a great question. I wonder what he would think about the fact that you can just pick one up at the dollar store today. And this was my answer. And I'm going to tell you, I, I really believe this. I think he would love that the scriptures are that readily available to us. And I think he would hate the way that we just take that for granted. Because there was a 400 year period of history where there was no word from God. And some of you have multiple Bibles with dust all over them. What are we doing? What are we doing? This is the greatest story that's ever been told, contained in God's revealed word. The writer of Hebrews, looking back on this, puts it this way. Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So you and I, looking from where we live in history now, back on these events, go, hey, it's great because 400 years after, the ultimate word will come. Malachi is the last word from God until the ultimate word actually appears. And that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. The seed is about to appear. The head of the serpent is about to be ground into a powdery mess. Death, hell, and the grave are about to be overwhelmingly defeated. Messiah is on his way. But the people remain in their sin. Oblivious preoccupied with our own small world. It's easy for us to look at a picture like that and go, man, how in the world could people be so stupid? You ever ask yourself that? You read a story about somebody in the Bible and you go, idiot. I do it all the time. And then I get hit in the back of the head by the Holy Spirit who says, yeah, yeah, you can identify. Because how many times has greatness passed by and you have not noticed it because you were preoccupied with some lesser thing. That's the lesson that we should take from this period, this final period of Old Testament history. Where's God in your work, at work in your life right now and you're not seeing it because you're so preoccupied? The greatest tragedy of all is when God works through human history to bring Messiah into the world and his people don't realize it through prophets who call his people out in sin and redemption to ultimately bring the ultimate lawgiver, the better king, the righteous judge, the ultimate prophet who's going to take away their sin and they turn away. How stupid. But how often does it happen in our own day when we, unlike them, have God revealing to us in the fullness of his word. We have more revelation. We have more history behind us that we can look at and we can see in human history what God has done for us. God doesn't want us, church, to miss our moment. Let's not be so preoccupied with lesser things that we miss our opportunity as a body corporately to repent, to get right, and to get into the lane that he wants us to get in and to seize our destiny in the name of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you've never confessed your sins and you've never put your faith and trust in him, there's never been a moment in your life like there was in Ezra's where he said, God, I'm embarrassed to even look at you. You don't know him. Now's your opportunity to recognize that your sins have separated you from your God, but also to recognize that through that act of repentance, God has taken human flesh in the person of Jesus. He has paid for your sins on the cross. He has risen triumphantly over death, hell, and the grave. And on the other side of that humiliation and the other side of that repentance sits a life of joy unlike anything you have ever known. Don't miss it like the Israelites did. Seize it with all your might. Let's pray together.
Father, I thank you for your word and for the challenges that it gives us. I thank you for periods in history that, that reveal to us a, a people very much like ourselves. Lord, as we prepare to respond to your word, I pray for people all over this building. I ask you to bring others to Christ. Lord, would your spirit just draw individuals who don't know you to know you personally. I pray for our church family in the coming week, even in the coming couple of weeks. I know our small groups meet at intermittent times whenever they come up across this question. In what ways is God calling our church family to repent? And Lord, I pray they would discuss that sincerely. I pray that repentance begins at that small group level. I pray that our elders and me are challenged from small groups that go, hey, this is what God's revealed to us. And Lord, may you bring your people to where you want us to be. Help us to not be preoccupied with the cosmetic. Help us to long for revival. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.